Genesis 12:10-13:4. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, "I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, "This is his wife." Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our study of the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the story of promise, a story of faith, today, a story of faltering, faltering faith. Let's pray together. Let's pray for God's help. God, we thank you so much for your word because it's so real, even the stories of these men and women who followed hard after you, that you give us all the real details of what it looked like for them to stumble through real life, life that looks like our lives, that their lives would be a help to ours. So we pray that this little vignette, this story, this true story, would be of help to us, every one of us, wherever we are at in our relationship with you, whether just starting off or walking with you for many years. We pray your grace that you would make this word come alive and that you would impact us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we saw this wonderfully soaring passage of this great God who makes extravagant promises, binding himself to this relatively forgettable person who had nothing in his background and no natural religious inclination towards this God, but God pursues this man named Abram. And he calls him to leave everything that's familiar and everything that's secure to him, his father's household, his country, his home. And God says, leave that I might deliver to you a promise like you have never seen before. It was a promise of favor. 
God's kindness to a sinful, rebellious person, a person like you and me. A promise of significance that Abraham's name would be great. A promise of family and community that God would build out of him and out of his descendants a nation, a great nation. A promise of land, of place, a concrete area, space in this world where faithfulness and life and living can be worked out. And a promise of mission that God would take these people and this person, Abraham, and through him and through them, use them to bring blessing to the whole world, the whole world. Through this man, Abraham. Amazingly, Abram does leave. He believes God's promise. He goes around this land that he finally arrives at and he builds altars here and there and there. Almost as if to say, God, this place is a place that belongs to you. Thank you. And here too, this place, it belongs to you. And thank you for your promise. And this part over here, I believe your promise here too. It belongs to you. And then finally we see him pitching his tent. Saying in effect, this is home. My new home. And at the end of verse 9 of this chapter that we saw last week, there's just soaring optimism and hope for a grand future. God has made His promises. His man Abram has believed them. We're doing well. Here we go. Oh, no. Verse 10. Verse 10. Immediately after, everything seems to be coming apart at the seams. The land seems like it's falling apart. Abraham's faith looks like it's falling apart. What is going on? We're going to look at two brief points, and then we'll be done. The first point that we see in this passage is simply this. God's blessing cannot be blocked by a broken world. God's blessing, His favor, His kindness, His goodness in your life, in my life, if we have a relationship with Him through Jesus, His blessing cannot be blocked by a broken world. Verse 10 and 11. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. If you've been tracking with the story up to this point, you just got to... Take in the surprise of this. This is the same land that God had just promised He would give as a gift to Abram. Where Abram's faith and faithfulness would be worked out. Where God would plant him and his descendants and his family where they would make up a great nation, where they would flourish, where they would extend the kindness of God to the whole world. And now the land is rotten, falling apart. Vulnerable, broken, subject to a famine, a famine that was so bad that Abram decided to leave and go to Egypt to go find better pastures. It almost looks like God has dropped the ball and it almost looks like Abram 
has given up on the promise. Doesn't it? Friends, do, do you ever feel like the unpredictability of life and the fragility of life and the hardships of life and the stresses of life, do you feel like the brokenness of life makes it impossible for God to fulfill His purposes and promises to you? That this world is just too wrecked and things just don't happen as they ought to. And so God can't come through. Do you feel that way ever? This land is too famine prone. So there's no way that God can possibly deliver on his promise to bless Abram. Or maybe it sounded like or sounds like to you what my heart sounded like walking into this dance institute not long ago. Where I was almost saying to myself, we are running too late here, my family. Far too late, far too rushed. There's no way that God could bless me in this worship service. No way that he could meet me in my soul. Broken schedules. Broken morning routines on the way to church. Or maybe you say to yourself, life and relationships in this town can sometimes just be too transient. People coming and people going. That there's no way that God could ever bless me with true friendships here. Or it's too hot. There's no way that I could ever know the true joy of knowing God. Not today. Or it's too hard to find a stable job. There's just no way that God could bless me with financial stability, let alone finding a workplace that actually used my gifts and personalities. Or maybe my family is just too dysfunctional that there's no way God could bless me with any kind of growth or change in my family relationships. Or life is just too stressful There's no way I can find the time or the emotional space to really come to know God and really nail down this relationship with God thing. Friends, what, what kind of proverbial famine do you got going in your life that has you convinced that God can't show up? That's got you convinced that God won't show up, that He can't deliver on his promises that he won't bless certain parts of your life. Because this passage is telling us that God's blessing can't be blocked by this broken world. God's blessing, his kindness, his favor, the good things that he works into our lives, even through our trials, yes, can't be blocked through the brokenness, by the brokenness of life. You see, by the end of this passage, and we'll get to the middle part of it, we see Abram what? Back in the land. Back on track. Continuing on this journey, even if in a meandering sort of manner. Marching forward as God unrolls and unveils His promise to His son, Abram. And not only does He return to the land, 
He returns replenished with his pockets full, as it were. Blessed with abundant resources in the midst of this famine now. Who would have thought? No. No. A broken world cannot block God's blessing. And one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to grasp this, I think, is because of the way in which we often equate painlessness in life and ease in life with God's blessing. And it's hard for us to understand and imagine that being in the place of God's favor doesn't in itself eliminate pain and suffering from life. Or maybe pain and suffering is too strong a word for you. I mean even discomforts and trials and challenges. The sort of way in which we think, maybe subconsciously, but too often, if it hurts or if it's hard, I must be doing something wrong. It's what theologians often will call a prosperity gospel, right? If you are following God well, your life has to be, must be, will only be smiles and happiness at all times. Friends, you can be doing everything right. Abram was, and a famine can still hit. You can be doing everything right and following after God and still encounter the brokenness of this life and world. In fact, that's exactly the arena in which God loves to bring His promise, test our faith, nourish our souls, boast in His ability to provide as He does in this passage. His kindness, His generosity sometimes shines the brightest in the cracks and crevices of a broken world and a broken life. The second point here, not only that God's blessing can't be blocked by the brokenness of this world, but God's blessing can't be blocked by broken people either. Broken people like you and me, broken people with flagging faith, people like you and me who struggle to trust God, who struggle to believe things. And I don't know where you are in your journey. Maybe even the basics of the Christian faith and what you encounter in the Bible just feels so impossible for you to embrace intellectually, emotionally, or otherwise. Or maybe you've been walking with God for many years, and yet you're hitting some point in life where it's just hard to persevere and hang in there. Do you know that God's blessing, His favor, His goodness, His work in your life, even through trials and hard times, cannot be blocked by the brokenness in your soul as well? Maybe you've been saying up to this point, the past couple weeks and even this morning, you're saying, look, faith is hard for me, It just seems so easy for Abram. Well, this passage reminds us it's just not true. It's a struggle for him as well. The MVP of team faith in the Bible falters, fails because of fear. You got any fear working in your life today? Let's take a look. Abram and Sarai and the family, they moved down to Egypt, running away from the famine, looking for better pastures. And Abram realizes that they just might be running into a problem 
while they're in Egypt. And so we see this in the passage. He turns to Sarai and he says, Look, honey, you're beautiful. We all know that you're hot stuff. And we know that wherever we go, everyone else is going to know and see the same thing. So what is going to happen here is that people are either going to want to steal you and kill me if they think I'm your husband, or if they think I'm just your brother and part of your family, they'll still want to take you, but they won't kill me, and at least they'll pay us a bride price, which was a normal ancient practice in the way that marital exchanges happened. This is why we see this exchange of cattle and camels and livestock and all these other gifts that are eventually given to Abram. If anyone tells, if anyone asks you, or if we come into the situation where people are looking towards you, tell them that you're my sister. Verse 13, so that I will be treated well for your sake because of you, and my life will be spared because of you. And of course, as we've talked about before in the past, what Abram is actually proposing isn't a full-on lie and deception. It's sort of a half-lie and a half-truth. Because Sarai actually is his half-sister. And so, in a sense, he's sort of just bending the truth and kind of telling him things, telling the Egyptians things that maybe work in their benefit. He predicted rightly. They move on rightly. They lied as they had planned. And Sarai is taken into the palace of Pharaoh as the newest member of the Egyptian king's harem. This is of great concern to the narrator. The word wife is mentioned eight times in this passage. Just to remind us again and again, this is Abram's wife. This is his wife. This is his wife. And here she is now in the palace of Pharaoh, Abram was jeopardizing not only his marriage, but God's plan to produce from within them a descendant, and from that descendant, a whole nation who would be the source of blessing to the whole world. Everything is at stake right now. And friends, here's the thing. We're not so different from Abram, are we? You see, for Abram, it all started within with this deep fear that he had. A fear that the Egyptians would kill him. And that manifested itself in the, what you might call a surface sin. A surface compromise. Where he says, look, in order to cope with or to manage this fear, let me tell a half-truth, a half-lie. Let me just bend the truth a little bit in order to accommodate this great, grave terror that I have inside of my heart. When deep down inside, what was really going on was Abram was having a really hard time believing God's promise. Trusting that God really would come through when he said earlier that I will make your name great and make of you a great nation, which cannot happen if you're dead. I'm going to keep you alive and exalt you, your name and the descendants after you. 
And God even said, I will bind myself to you with such solidarity that whoever blesses you, I will bless. But whoever curses you also, I will curse. I will protect you. I will be for you. I will be your God. You don't have to fear that any harm, ultimate harm, will come upon you. Abram doesn't believe it. And of course, in the end, he's not just lying about their relationship, but he basically sacrifices his wife and their relationship, Sarai being the collateral damage of Abram's fear and unbelief. Our lives work the same way. You see, maybe on the surface, in our interactions with people, we give in to little half-deceptions. Maybe it looks pretty innocent on the surface. A half-truth, a half-lie. It's not really that big of a deal. A half-truth on your job application, where I went to school or what I studied or how well I did, or what my responsibilities were in the last job that I had. Or maybe a half-truth or a half-lie in my eHarmony profile, just to make sure that I, I just have just, just a little bit of an advantage over the next person. Whether if it's an activity or an interest, or maybe a picture that makes me look a little bit better than I normally do, or whatever it might be. These surfaced half-truths and half-lies, when underneath it all is a fear No one's going to find me attractive. Or I might not ever find anyone, maybe. Or in my work, I won't get ahead. Or I ain't never going to find a job. You see, underneath the half-truth lies a deeper fear. And then underneath the fear, though, lies a refusal to or a resistance to believing in the promises of God. A God who says, I will work all things together for your good. A God who says, your ultimate value comes from your relationship with me, that you are my daughter, you are my son, and I love you. Derive your identity from that, from me, and not what you find on your profile, and not what you put on your resume. Or another example, and to flip it on and talk about it in a, in a backwards fashion, that we hear these promises in Scripture, places like in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, people that know how dependent they are on God will find the favor of God. Isaiah 63, this is the one I esteem. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. But we don't believe it. Or we don't want to. Why? Because of fears that we have. I don't want to look weak. I must be strong, or I'm afraid I'll lose people's respect if it looks like I might fail at something. And so all of this arises to the surface with these half-truths and half-lies. You see, you're burnt out, and you're depressed, but you won't tell anyone. Or you feel weak, but you keep to yourself, 
People ask you how you're doing, and you say, I'm fine. See, do you see how on the surface of things it does not seem like a big deal? It's just a little white lie, we say. It's just a little bending of the truth. And on some level, you're right. It is not on the surface a big deal, but deep down inside is spreading through our souls a grave cancer called fear and unbelief. And unless we're starting to see the way in which these things work in our hearts, we don't always see what is truly motivating our behavior and our actions. Friends, how do your half-truths and half-lies actually expose deeper fears, which in turn expose deeper struggles to trust in God's promises? I mean, will you follow the trail and see the, the sin beneath the sin beneath the sin? And see how so often our struggles really do come down to our grasp of this God of promise. And yet, here's the story. Even these failures, even these falterings, are not so strong or so conclusive that God's blessing could ever be blocked even by our broken faith. Because here's the story of God pursuing Abram even in Egypt intervening with plagues, as it were, to give Pharaoh smelling salts and awaken him to what is going on. God entering into this situation. He's almost hidden behind the actions of other people and other circumstances. And yet it's clear in the passage that God is there delivering and rescuing Abram, carrying him through, continuing on in his promises. Abram's faith is flawed. He falters, but God is faithful to his promise. And in fact, this passage actually even seems to invite us to say, look, if this guy... This Abram, great though he may be, if he's going to be what we're banking on for the salvation of the whole world, then we are in trouble. Right from the start, the narrator wants to expose this suspicion that is right to raise before Abram. If he's the hope of the world, there is no hope, is there? And so a passage like this intentionally draws us to start to see and look for and long for perhaps a greater one than Abram. One who's like him, but faithful unlike him. One who doesn't falter. Perhaps one of his greater descendants. Perhaps one named Jesus. Jesus, who did everything Abram should have done but didn't, who was everything we are supposed to be but aren't. You see, Jesus, when he came, he wasn't self-preserving, but rather self-sacrificing, putting you and me before his own needs. See, Abram says, hey, let me live. Jesus calls out, kill me and let them live. Abram lied to save his own life. 
Jesus told the truth, knowing that it would cost him his life in order to save our lives. Abram was stumped by a famine. Jesus willingly brought famine upon his soul, the most severe famine imaginable, taking our judgment. So parched was his soul because of the forsakenness of his soul by his Father in judgment that he cries out on the cross, I thirst. There's no more water and no more food for my soul because God has departed from me. Though he didn't deserve it, Abram was blessed by God. And though he didn't deserve it, Jesus was cursed by God on the cross. Friends, the blessing of God in the life of Abram could not be broken by Abram's faithfulness, faithlessness. And so God provided an even more sure Abram, the true Abram, Jesus, his descendant, the faithful one. And if we would just get our hearts and our minds wrapped around this story where we can start to see the kindness and the compassion and the steadiness and the strong loyalty and love of God, our Father, it would start to rebuild our trust in His promises. What we'll start to see, look, God is true. God does bless more than I deserve, better than I deserve, in details in life, but most of all, in my salvation, in the forgiveness of my sins, in the supply of my weak faith. Let me finish with this last question. When you falter or fall or fail, where do you turn? Where do you go? Look at where Abraham went. Delivered from Egypt, Where does he turn? Does he run from God? Does he turn the other direction? Does he go away with his tail between his legs? No. He goes back up. Verse 3 of chapter 13, he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. You see, when Abram falls and when he fails, here is true faith. He goes back home. Abram goes back to the place where he pitched his tent, where he originally called on the name of the Lord. How did Abram deal with his failure of faith? He went back to square one. You see the passage literally backtracking geographically to where Abram started, to where he had first heard the promise of God, the display of the grace of God. And this is what we're called to do. When you falter or fall, do you run from God or do you return to Him? It's a subtle thing. I see it in my life, friends, how often if I screw up or if I know I'm not doing well, out of shame, I think, maybe guilt, or maybe just a disappointment in myself that I ought to be doing better or something like that, 
Well, I'll resist God. Stay away from the very place and person that I need to be with, that I need to be near. And I kind of just let time pass by, letting time itself atone for my guilt, as it were. And just saying, look, I'll just forget about him, and before you know it, I'll just stop feeling bad, and maybe then I'll be okay. But it doesn't really work. The strategies that you use to atone or to run work in your life. See, true faith is a faith that turns back to God even in the face of failure, friends. Even when our faith falters. That even if you have the most mature of faith, that we know that we will fail and falter at times, but the difference is that you know where to go and you do go there, and that is to God. It's what the Bible calls repentance, restoration, and renewal. And maybe some of you are sitting here saying, look, I just feel like I've screwed up too badly. I've gone too far beyond God's reach. You don't know my story in my life. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, I I, I should know better. I should be better. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm embarrassed of myself. Friends, God is calling you home. God is calling you back to His original promise. Where He says, I will bless you, though you are a sinner. And I will be kind to you and faithful to you. And I will draw you to myself. He's making a way for you to return home that you might call on the name of the Lord. Do you hear the invitation? Do you hear it? Coming from this God, a God of blessing, a God who can't be blocked, not by this broken world, not by our broken faith, He's a faithful God. Let's pray. God, we trust in you. And we look to you. And we hope in you. We pray your kindness upon us that you would help us to believe. That you would help us to walk this journey of life as pilgrims through a broken world and with hearts and lives that are being reconstructed by the power of your grace though we fall and falter and fail, uh, that you are with us always. We want to believe that. Change our lives with this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing.